Hi, friends, and welcome to Robcast 98. And in this episode, I get to introduce you to my beloved friend, Rabbi Joel. And, uh, oh, yeah, seriously, I'm so excited that you get to meet Rabbi Joel. But before we do that, a couple things real quickly. Um, the new Everything is Spiritual film is out. It is on YouTube for free. So uh, do 2016 Everything is Spiritual, Rob Bell, and it will get you there. The film is an hour and 55 minutes long. And um, just already the feedback has been extraordinary. So um, I hope you enjoy the new Everything is Spiritual film. And then uh, we had a little bit of a scheduling hiccup, but my next Largo show is all locked in for May 31st. And I've got some uh, new things up my sleeve. May 31st, Largo, tickets at Largo-LA, or you can get them on the live at Largo Circle on my website. And if you're in the Los Angeles area, I'll see you there. And if you're not, come on, come on in, get an airplane, trains, planes, boats. Uh, we'd love to have you in Los Angeles for the next Largo show. And then uh, June 4, I'll be in Berkeley for the Bay Area Book Festival. And I'll be on the Saturday morning of the 4th. And you can get all that info at the, I think it's Bay Area Book Fest is the best way to get the whole schedule on that. And then... Um, those of you in Australia, July, I'm teaming up with the wonderful folks at wakeupproject.com to do How to Be Here Experience in Australia. We're doing um, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne, and one in Brisbane. And you can get your tickets now, and I will see you um, there. I had so much fun a couple months ago that I thought I need to go back right away. So looking forward to that. And then um, UK tour, Belfast Tickets are now up. Dublin tickets are now up. And London tickets are up. So doing How to Be Here events throughout the UK. Um, Belfast and Dublin and London are now up. And then Pete Rollins. You all know Pete Rollins. Pete Rollins and I are teaming up with some fine folks to do a, an event, like a conference in Lincoln, um, which is, I don't know, a couple hours outside of London on the 11th and 12th, and that's called the Timings Two-Day UK Conference. And uh, literally, if you Google Timings Two-Day UK, Rob Bell, Pete Rollins, you will get to it. And uh, so all kinds of stuff um, coming at us all. But this, what's about to come at you? Look out, my friends, because this is Rabbi Joel. Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And this one, we've got the rabbi in the back house. <laughs> rabbi Joel Nickerson, my beloved friend, is here. Rabbi Joel. Hi. <laughs> is this your first podcast? This is my first podcast. I I'm, love I'm, it. I'm pretty excited. I love it. And Rabbi Joel is the rabbi at uh, Temple Isaiah? Temple Isaiah, West right L.A. Here. Right, right here, here in West L.A. Yeah. And our daughters are friends. Yep. So we get together, our daughters play, and we generally laugh. We laugh a lot. <laughs> we do laugh. <laughs> so the other day, I was like, you should come on the Robcast, and would you teach us your favorite Hebrew words that have shaped you? And you were like totally up for it. Yeah. I mean, you said five, which is hard to narrow down to five. And we could do like a whole series on a whole, a whole well, bunch of them, but I, I, I got six. Okay, this is then, right now, let's just declare this is part one. Part one. 
So you have six words. I have six words. Okay. Some so, are very familiar. Some may not be. But what I love about the ones that are familiar is that they have multiple meanings. That's what makes them so great. Yes. And uh, I should say by intro, the Hebrew language has way, way less words than English. Mm-hmm. And so... And Eng- I'm, I'm, I'm telling my, my listeners, not you. <laughs> like, I'm looking at you no, like... thank you. Please. Rabbi Joel, let me, let me help you understand it's the Hebrew language. to be refreshed, you know. <laughs> By an idiot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Teach me. Teach me. But, but you would, I'm sure you would say to an English-speaking audience who's not familiar with Hebrew that, that there are a lot less words, so the words become way more pliable and... Yes. open, and you can dance with them way more. Yeah, and they all usually they all have a three-letter root. So there are a lot of words that come out of the root of, of a word, and then it kind of expands into a million different words that come from that one root base. Yeah. Um, and then even then a specific word can have multiple meanings, like some of the ones that we're going to talk oh, about. Fantastic. Yeah. I recently did a, a, an episode of the Robcast on Teshuva. Oh. And how, and how, did, how did you define it? I went to the root turn or return. Nice. Um, and this moment of illumination when you realize that you've been on a path, but you wandered into the deep weeds, and then you come home, essentially. So it just, Love but it's it. fascinating to me. And I could show you pictures of people who've gotten tattoos of Teshuva since that episode. Really? So I just find it fascinating how these Hebrew words have so shaped me. I did an episode recently on Shalom. Um, and I just find it fascinating that in. 2016, when I talk about Hebrew words and what they've meant to me and how they've helped me see things, so many people resonate with this mm-hmm. that I'm like, people need to hear it from, you know, someone a couple <laughs> clicks up the knowledge ladder than me. Okay, so let's do your first word. Okay. First word is Yisrael, yes. or better known as Israel. Yep. Um, the reason I love it is it has multiple meanings. Obviously, there's the land of Israel which is an amazing place and beautiful. There are the people of Israel. Um, there is the person Israel. So the story is Jacob, his name changing to Israel. What I love about that is the deeper meaning behind that. So if you remember, I'm sure you remember, the story of Jacob, he leaves his family. He's going to be reunited with his brother Esau after like 20 years after he stole his brother's birthright. And so he sends his family across the river and he's left alone in the desert by himself at night. And it says in the Hebrew that an ish, uh, which is usually translated as a man, but it's actually, it's unclear who or what, um, wrestles with him. And in, in the process of that wrestling, um, Jacob asks for a blessing and, and his name is changed by this angel um, from Jacob, Yaakov in Hebrew, to Yisrael. And it says there, um, your name will be Yisrael, for you have struggled uh, and wrestled with the divine and succeeded. And so what I love about it is that Israel, Yisrael, the people of Israel, is really about a people who struggle, like built into the essence of, of Israel, the people of Israel, is this concept of struggling. And that struggle is a positive, wonderful, and life-affirming piece of what it means to be alive. Like you have to struggle in order to really find yourself. And if you're not doing that, then you can't really be living. And so every time we say we are the people of Israel, we are talking about this need to struggle, to question. Like I I like 
I like it. It's not just struggle intellectually and emotionally and it's spiritually. It's also about what are the questions you need to ask yourself in order to be having a meaningful life. Oh, I love it. Now, he, you have struggled and succeeded. Yeah. You have wrestled, you have struggled and wrestled with the divine and you have succeeded. You have succeeded against the divine? Well, it's not. How this does is, it read? This is where it's not clear if he's wrestling with an angel. Some say yeah. he's wrestling with himself. Right. Because he's about to be reunited with his brother who he shamed and who he's not really sure if his brother is going to try and kill him. Is his brother going to embrace him, which he ends up doing? Um, so, so some of it is about are, can you struggle with yourself and, and succeed? Or what does it mean to struggle with the divine? Um, can you really fail? If you're struggling with the divine, like if you're struggling, you're doing what you're supposed to do. And how could you fail if you're not struggling? That's the problem. That's the problem. That's <laughs> when you fail. Uh, one of the reasons I love that story is when you first meet Jacob, his first line is I'm Esau. Hmm. And then when he wrestles by the river is the first time he says, I'm Jacob. So it's the journey of somebody becoming comfortable in their own skin. When you first meet him, he's pretending to be someone else. Yeah. And what I love about the story is he finally comes to terms with who he is. He's finally comfortable with his own skin. Instead of I'm Esau, I'm Jacob. And then the Ish is like, okay, now that you're finally ready to say your name, we're going to give you a new name. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know uh, what I mean? Yeah. It's such a funny story that like, oh, good, you can finally own up to your name. Say it. I'm the Jacob. Now nah, we're going to change your name. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's interesting. He's one of the few. I think he might be the only character throughout the rest of his journey is referred to by both names. Usually, like Abraham and Sarah, their names change. Once they change, um, it's, and then usually it's, it's on final, out. except for Jacob. And he he goes back and forth with these two pieces of his identity, Yisrael and Yaakov, throughout the rest. Why is of that? It's uh, a good question. Probably because there's a recognition that once you struggle, you understand that there's a piece of yourself from the past that you can never let go of, but you can own it in a new way, but you don't have to necessarily let go of it. You have to own it. You have to own every piece of yourself along the journey, and he owns it in a way that uh, allows him to hold both of those identities in play. This is a part of my story. Not terribly proud of the elements of it, but I acknowledge that it is part of my story and it has become integrated in my whole being. So uh, I'm not ashamed. I'm not burying it or repressing it or denying it. It's just there. Mm -hmm. oh, that's good. Okay, what, do you, what next? Let's right. go. Next one, Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is usually translated as Egypt. I think this was on my mind mostly because we just finished Passover last mm -hmm. week. Um, and we refer to Egypt a lot in the story of the Exodus, obviously, which basically Genesis and the story of Jacob is kind of all part of their prequel to yes. Exodus. And yes. Exodus is the real story of the Jewish people. Yes. Um, and so you leave Mitzrayim, you leave Egypt, and you go towards the promised land, the the land of Israel. But what's really cool is that there's another uh, definition and translation of Mitzrayim, not Egypt, but narrow place. And so the oh. process of leaving Egypt is also the process of what does it mean to leave a narrow place to more expanded horizon? Which is why in the Psalms, there's all those lines about a wide place and a cramped place, this yeah. contrast between two different so it's not it's not just a geographic it's a like a, a condition of the soul or exactly the heart. so Passover every year what what the Jewish people are trying to do is how do you move away from the things that enslave you the narrow pieces of your life and how do you expand your horizons how do you go back to your your true self 
And that is requires you leaving the narrow place to go out into the desert, struggle through that desert, find yourself, and then hopefully one day reach the promised land. So, uh, so during Passover, are there uh, exercises, questions, prompts that you give people to think about narrow? Like, what would be an example of narrow spaces that you that people you lead have named? Uh, one thing that comes up a lot is um, money and power, and what are the influences that the people are enslaved by societal norms and things that they think they are supposed to do uh, or the ways they're supposed to act. Yeah. Um, and so they're trying to get out of that. Technology is something that comes up a lot. Uh, people are, are enslaved to not only uh, using technology all the time, but how do they create their identity online? Is that a different persona than who they are in real life? And how do you get enslaved and, and kind of narrowed in on this idea that there's a certain way you're supposed to be an image, an image I'm supposed to project when, in fact, it's not who I really am, and I'm tired of keeping up the facade. Or yeah, wow, I love it. One year, uh, uh, we did a whole leaving. E- I did a whole leaving Egypt series, and we spent a whole series of like Lent dealing with what is it you need to leave behind so that you can be freed. And then we had people bring a physical object that was a symbol of something Egypt they were enslaved to that they wanted to leave behind. And we set aside a whole day on, on the Christian calendar, Good Friday, where people could just bring stuff and leave it. And people would literally, the amount of drug paraphernalia. No. Actual computers. <laughs> um, dudes bringing in bags, like paper bags full of magazines, like armloads, people backing truck up to the door of the building and just unloading stuff in very odd marked boxes and That's amazing. built a pile of stuff. I remember one couple uh, brought in a sheet of paper and sat in front of the pile for probably four hours holding the sheet of paper between them and then put the paper on and walked out. Um, But it was all, is there some physical object that's a symbol of that which is enslaving you that you need to leave behind? Mm. And what's interesting to me is um, when I, at the end of the day, when when people, I think for six hours, could come at any point to the church building and drop off stuff, when I went up on the stage to the pile, honestly, uh, Kristen and I call it Stonehenge-y, but when (laughs) when physical space has a hum to it, it, it had like a... Um, it's the presence of this pile was overwhelming. Like your spirit was, yeah. was like knocked me out. Um, what did you do with all the stuff? Then we made it all disappear. <laughs> so that the next time they came to the church service, which was Resurrection Sunday, none of it would be there just as a way of embodying um, let's all move forward. Um, wow. But I know, but this, this image, and it's interesting to me how often on this latest tour, when I talk about the Exodus story as the, and Genesis is the prologue, how did they end up in slavery? Well, in the beginning. <laughs> Which, um, I actually wrote a book on this with my friend Don about Exodus as the, it's the, inst- it's the inaugural event of the scriptures. And Genesis is like a prologue to tell you how we got here. Mm-hmm. That is, it was a new idea in a lot, of, uh, a lot of Christian circles people haven't heard 
that none of the Exodus is about actual deliverance in space and time from whatever it is that oppresses you. That's the story. Yep. And that's commonly held among rabbis. It's a duh thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Of course. Yeah. Because it's always about what is it that you need to be liberated from. Yeah. I and, love it. And at the Seder, when you start Passover, you spend the first couple nights asking lots of questions. So the Seder is this whole yeah. ritual where you sit yeah, around. Yeah. The whole point is to be asking questions. How is this night? Different from all other different nights. Different from all the nights. Yeah. And I love the fact that you, at the heart of the whole thing, is teaching your kids how to ask questions. Yes. That's the whole deal. So that is, that is the foundation, I think, the foundation of what it means to live a meaningful life is you have to ask questions because it's scary to ask questions. Be so, so when someone says to you, Rabbi Joel, I'm just so worried that I'm not, my kids aren't learning all the stuff they are to learn, you, you would say, well, yeah, I mean, you can come to a class or you can come to it, but you got to teach your kid to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the thing. As opposed to some like shelf full of the magical facts right somewhere you don't think about it that way no no because i i don't think that works in our world anymore people can get facts online in literally two seconds they don't want facts they can find facts on their own but interpersonal relationship is about un kind of unleashing and unveiling a piece that you can't find online it's about and the only way to get there is through asking questions you got to ask questions you have to know how to ask questions so you have to train people how to ask questions and then you have to be bold enough to ask them because when you ask a question usually someone's going to respond with an answer and you may not like the answer but it's how do you respond to the answers how do you ask and it's the whole give and take goes on and on okay we're gonna have to do a whole thing on that at some point <laughs> Okay, third word. Okay, third word, kavanah. So How do you spell it? K-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. And the root would be K-V-N yep. or K-V-N? Mm -hmm. And the whole idea there is in, in Jewish prayer, in a prayer service, there, is, there are two concepts, keva and kavanah. Keva is, is thought of as structure. There's a whole structure to a prayer service, certain prayers that you say at certain times, in a certain order. And then kavanah means intention. So you need both. In, in prayer, you need both the structure and you need intention. You need both the, the format by which you understand how to move through a prayer experience and through a spiritual experience. But if you only have that and you don't have personal intention behind it, then it's worthless. So kavanah is about how do you bring intention, not only into your prayer experience, but how do you bring intention into your life? How do you walk through? Because according to our tradition, you're supposed to say at least 100 blessings a day. And if you're going to say 100 blessings a day and actually mean it, then you have to have intention behind that. And intention means you, you understand why you're doing what you're doing. And you have to explore that. And then you, you bring that intention, then your prayer has power. And it's the two, Keva and Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, so, yeah. Kavanaugh. So tell me about blessings like today, blessings that you've said. Blessings today. It's like a ticker. Like what number are you at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I should get a. It's like one of those Apple Fit, Watch. Fit things. Yeah, I should get an Apple, Apple Watch. Watch an has app. like a. Oh, an app. That would be a good one. That would be a good app. No uh, one has thought of that. A blessing there, app. There, well, there are blessing apps. Are there really? Oh, I was yeah. joking. Oh, no. Oh, my word. Of course they're blessing apps. Oh, my word. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing sacred. Um, <laughs> so, like, blessing... I know there's a blessing for, like, thank you, God, when you go to the bathroom, that the orifices work. Yep. Yep. That thank one. you, God, for the movement when of my... When you wake up, you're supposed to thank God for your soul returning to you, because the, the rabbis thought that basically a part of you died when you were sleeping, and so when you 
wake up. It's as if you were reborn. Uh, and oh, so, yeah. so good. Yeah. And so you thank God for your soul returning to you. You thank God for your orifices working properly. Um, there's a whole set of prayers called Nisim B'chol Yom, daily miracles. And what's great about them is the way that they are structured in a siddur, in a prayer book, is that it's a link between physical actions, like thank you God for opening the eyes of the blind. That's one of my favorites. So it's not just about physically waking up and opening your eyes and how you're able to open your eyes. It's linking physical actions to Jewish values. What does it mean to walk through the day and open the eyes of the blind? How are you going to walk through your day doing that? Uh, another one's about, thank, uh, thank you, God, for uh, who clothes the naked, right? So that's about putting on your clothes and how lucky you are to have clothes. But how are you going to go out and help to clothe the naked? So it's the, there is your own enactment of it, and then yours is how that will affect others in the world. Are there certain blessings that are more personally meaningful to you? Yes. Uh, the Shema, which is the central. Yes, Hero Israel, Lord our God, Lord is yep, one. Yep. So that one strikes deeply with me. Mm-hmm. Uh is a prayer about redemption. It's a prayer we say every day. Wait, Mocha. It's What's it's that basically mean? based on the prayer that um that was said when the Israelites crossed the sea at the sea split, crossed the sea, sea came down on on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and there was a song at the sea when they reached the other side. And part of that song built into that is Mocha, which is in the Hebrew, who is like you, God, among the gods. Uh, and it's a prayer you say every day about redemption. And so it's this prayer that, that every day you are reminded of that journey, as we talked about from Mitzrayim to Israel, uh, and how there are these moments where you are at a threshold, like you need to cross the sea. And every day you have to cross the sea. And you have to then thank God that you have the opportunity to cross that sea every single day. And so that's a prayer that's repeated a couple times during oh, the day. Oh, man. When do, you say, when do you repeat Shema? Shema you say in the morning and in the afternoon service or evening service. And then we do it with our kids at night, right at bedtime. So oh, when, they're, yeah, when they're in, in bed... Turn out the lights. We do Shema and Twinkle Twinkle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, a little wait, bit wait, of wait. both. Yeah, so you we go, do it both. Hero Israel, Lord our God, Lord is one. Mm-hmm. It's you also just do that or do you do the whole, you do no, longer uh, we, well, we do that. We do that line followed by the Ve'ahavta, which is a continuation of uh, the Shema, which is about uh, how you express your love for God. And you express your love for God through this prayer, through action. So put up the uh, put a sign on the doorpost of your house, mezuzah. Uh, when you lie down, when you rise up, uh, speak of them in your home and on your way. So there, that the way you express love for God is through how you act in the world and how you act in, uh, on a daily basis. Yeah. So love for love for God is not some abstract. I just love God. It's like no, you act. Right. You yeah. enter into a flow of life that has a particular dimension yep. and form to it. Yeah, in, in Judaism, you can think whatever you want. You don't get in trouble for what you think. You get in trouble for how you act. So you, you do tshuva, repentance or return, what, based on how you've acted, how you've treated other people, how you've treated yourself, not necessarily what you think. So Judaism gives you a little leeway. You can think all kinds of things that you shouldn't be thinking about. It's when you act on them. That's when we hold you accountable. So, so when you hear like uh, when you hear about other religious people like Christians doing like oh so and so's you know dangerous theology, you're like whatever. 
<laughs> that's just like that's just mental furniture being arranged or whatever. Yeah, because I mean, because from my perspective, you're supposed to question and struggle with theology. I mean, you can't just have one way. You have to be always struggling to find your way, which means you're going to go on a whole circuitous path to get there. It might take you your whole life. Um, so a like almost like a dead or a struggling faith. I mean, a, not in a good sense, but in like a an anemic faith. We want is like, oh no, no, there's one way to think about this. Right. You you uh, as a rabbi would be like, oh seriously, that now you're in trouble. Right. <laughs> that is fantastic. Okay. Next. Yes. By okay. the way, I have a question about the Egypt. Wor- Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim doesn't sound anything like Egypt. No. That's just the Hebrew name for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So in the text, when it says Egypt in English, is it Mitzrayim? Yes, it's Mitzrayim in Hebrew. If you look at the Hebrew, it's Mitzrayim. Huh, okay. Mm-hmm. Next word, Hineni. Hineni? Hineni. Oh, you can't make, that's fantastic. Hineni. Hineni. It's uh, the most, so there are a couple times it shows up. What it means, by the way, it means here I am. So it's it's actually, Hine means here, and Hineni means here I am. Uh the, the first time it shows up the, is when Abraham says this, and Abraham says this when God asks him to go and sacrifice his son. Um, God says, Abraham, where are you? And, uh, God's, and Abraham says, Hineni, here I am. And then he gets ready, and then he goes on this journey, which for us Jews, we read that story every year. The Akita, year the, the Akedah. binding of Isaac. Yeah, we read the binding of Isaac every year at the high holidays. It's a real statement about faith and testing faith. So it shows up there. It shows up again when um, another instance is when Moses is about to see the burning bush and God introduces God's self and uh, God says, Moses, in that exact voice. <laughs> uh, and Moses says, Hineni, here I am. So it's, it's really what I love about it. It's about being present. What does it mean to be present? Hineni, here I am. Like I am ready to X. Uh, and so it's a real bold, it's, it's this bold statement that our forefathers used uh, in, in moments of significant transition or a moment of significant, um, I don't know, fear. It's like what comes next? They actually don't know what's going to, and there are significant turning points in these people's journeys. So what does it mean to be present on the precipice of change? So everything's falling apart. You don't know where the future is taking you. There's ambiguity left and right. You got critics. You got financial. But Hineni, mm-hmm. here I'm I here. Am. Mm-hmm. Here I am. I am ready. <sighs> That's strong. And it's almost like a jolt or a wake up or a reminder. Don't don't sleep on this because mm-hmm. this is your life. Exactly. Oh, how do we spell it? Well, so all of it's in transliteration. Right, exactly, exactly. What's the, easy, uh, uh, what's probably the, the easiest way? What's the tattoo H- version? H i n e i n i. Say that three times. H i n e i n i. Hineni. Ah, oh, I love it. Here I am. Isn't there a Samuel and Eli in the middle of the night? Here I am. Doesn't he keep coming uh, to yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Like you don't have it memorized, <laughs> just humoring me. But yeah, chapter way, nine, verse we don't, sixteen no, through seventeen. You know, us Jews and rabbis don't have texts memorized to the same degree you guys do. It's something we could learn what? from you. Yeah, really. 
we got to work on it. Some people can't look. There are some people who can't. But I'd say generally we don't use quote text the same way. And so we don't have it memorized the same way. Have you met rabbis who did have large sections memorized? Yes. What's so the you, most... should have, you should have invited them instead. What's the most impressive <laughs> oh, rabbi knowledge throwdown you've ever seen? Oh, <laughs> that's a tough one. There, um, there was a rabbi who passed away a couple of years ago named Rabbi Harold Schulweis. He oh, was, he, he was here in L.A.? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. He could throw down. <laughs> that man could throw down. Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of them out there. And, and, yeah. and um, are there rabbis who you could throw out to them? Uh, Moses and his wife Zipporah, and she says to him, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Mm-hmm. And they could do commentary, sermon, hook, modern yeah. application. Yes. Talmud, like they can just dance around that thing yeah. endlessly. Yeah. And what's great about it is there's also there's a lot of room to create new interpretations. So Midrash, which is interpretation, but, I mean, it's existed for a long time, but then there's all the modern Midrash, which yeah. exists. So all these people kind of playing with interpretations and filling in the gaps. I, I like the most famous one that I like is Cain and Abel. They go out into the field, dot, 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 and then he kills his brother. Like, what happened right there? Yeah. So there's a lot of midrash on that. Just endless filling in the spaces. Yeah. It's like, choose your own adventure, create your own story. I mean, every storyline ever created, I think, comes from all the drama in the Torah. I love it. And, I, you know, um, that's what happened to me is I went to, you know, like, Christian seminary, and which was very, like, this is what the Bible story means. Did they speak that way, too? Uh, yeah, that was actually not that far, right, 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 right. battery operated. No, but I, um, but it is when I dove into the Jewish roots and discovered Midrash and just a whole other way of interacting with it, that that's when things got, my own faith, like, came to life. Mm. By the way, those of you listening to Robcast are like, what is that thing that you do with the Bible? What do we call that? It's actually just modern midrash, where we take it and we we move with it, we groove with it, we play with it, and it's because we love it, not because we're it's because we're taking it more seriously, not less. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, you got what do you have now? Mitzvah. Oh, love it! Mitzvah six hundred thirteen. Let's 613 do this. Six hundred thirteen of them. <laughs> so usually I ask my thirteen year old bar and bar mitzvah kids at my opening meeting with them as bar, we're pro- mitzvah, bar mitzvah, son of the law, son bat yeah. mitzvah, daughter of the law. So usually I say, "What's mitzvah mean?" They always say, "Good deed." That's like the 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 typical answer. A mitzvah is a good deed. A good deed. And I say, "No, mitzvah means commandment. Mitzvah is a commandment. So there's a difference between a good deed." and a commandment. Good deed is usually something you do because you want to do it and makes you feel good. A commandment, it doesn't matter if you want to do it or not, you are required to do it. And uh, for liberal Jews, that is a challenge because how do you live in the modern world and you balance obligation with choice? That's something, Mm -hmm. it's a whole another conversation. But um, when it comes to mitzvah, I think we sell it short if it's just a good deed doing a good thing. It's about you have you are commanded, you have obligations in the world. If you see someone who is on the street 
and needs food. Uh, it's not about, oh, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I want to give him some food today. No, you are commanded, you are obligated to help the poor, the orphan, the widow, regardless of how you're feeling that day. And that's, I think, a really hard thing for us in the modern world to understand, but it's something that yeah. adds significance to, to what it means to, to do a mitzvah. It's, it's not just doing a good deed. It's about doing what you are commanded and obligated to do to make this world a better place. Oh, wow. And, and that is a, that is a, I can see where, where the friction would be for that as a, as a progressive rabbi is where you are calling people to something and there's people having to work that out. You must have a lot of conversations about this. Yeah. Yeah, the, and for Reform Judaism, which I'm part of, uh, there's a catchphrase, choice through knowledge, which, which tends to be the, the phrase that people have used to describe what it means to be a Reformed Jew, which is the idea that f- you, you're making choices about which obligations, which meets vote you're following, but you're supposed to do it with a backing of knowledge about why you're making that choice. Ah, so you're, got you're it. supposed to make a, a, a choice yeah. based on the, the homework you've done to understand do you keep kosher or not? If, if you don't, so do you actually have a reason? Can you articulate why you don't keep kosher? As opposed to, eh, I'm just, I just right. don't want to. So it isn't necessarily the exact practice. It's simply whether or not you've given it some thought. Mm-hmm. Like you actually have a, a, a coherent way of explaining why you do it this way or that way. Right. Excellent. Uh, by the way, there's this one line in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, let us not give up meeting together, but let us gather together to spur one another to do good deeds. And I've always assumed that, that writer was talking about mitzvot. Mm. Like we gather together to spur one another, spur one another on to do mitzvot. Look at you just spouting out <laughs> verses left and right. <laughs> okay, you have one more. I have one more. It's oh. the sixth one. I hope that's okay. It's not five. It's, it's six. Oh, dude, you're, uh, you're pardes. You're, oh, I love this. I love this. Why do you love this one? Orchard, right? Yeah. This is the whole how you read it. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. how there's like the four you or five mystical, mystical layers of interpretation. Yeah. And you start, oh yeah, so tell people this, because this is fantastic. <laughs> you can tell them. Yeah. When I first came across this, I was like, that's seriously awesome. Right. So you read a passage in the text. Right, so on the base level, pardes means orchard. Yes. And from and what the I letters, it's linked to paradise, yep. the word paradise. And then the letters are an acronym. So the Hebrew letters, there are four of them, and they each represent the four levels of interpretation of how you're supposed to interpret text. Because the Jewish way of reading Torah, you don't just read through it, you, you stop at every single word and, or phrase and try and understand why did they say it that way? Why I is there a repetition it. of that word there? And so you're supposed to go through these four levels of interpretation. So the first level for the puh, of Pardes is pshat, which is the simple, simple, simple meaning. Then uh, resh is remez, which is like the hint. How does this hint to other, how is this linked to other pieces of text in the Torah? And then drash, how do you start to build a commentary or, or connection between this and other pieces of learning or your own life? And then sod, which means secret. That's the, le- that's the deepest level like of interpretation. Like the mystical esoteric. Exactly. Um, and that's what you're always searching for. You're always trying to get through those first three levels of, of the simple and the hint and the commentary to get down to the secret. And that's where you find the true essence of what that text is supposed to be teaching you. And that's where you're supposed to link it to your own life 
And that's what makes it relevant. That's why we read the Torah every single year. We read the same thing over and over again, because every year when you're reading the same piece of Torah, you're coming at it from a different place. Your life is different. And so how do you read the same text, but now with a new interpretation? How do you find that secret, that deepest level that is different this year than it was last year? Because things will have changed. Yeah. And you're reading the text, but the text is reading you. And one season you read it this way, the next season you read it this way. And that's why we say when we put the Torah back in the ark at services, um, it is a tree of life to them who hold it fast. It's a living, breathing text. So it's not just something that was written thousands of years ago. It's something that is alive and, and you're supposed to recognize that. And the only way you recognize it as alive is if you relate it to your life today. The only way it can live is if it's related to you. So you have the Torah scroll. Yep. The scroll is in the ark. Yep. You bring it out yep. into the midst of the community. Mm-hmm. You read from it. You, pr- you, you march you it around. You parade it around. Yep. You dance it through. Sometimes. Give a hazan. Nice, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a cantor. For yes, those who may cantor would be their modern. Yes. So there's somebody whose job is to dance that scroll through this place. Yep, sing and dance. So the so you sing and dance while the words are brought, winding their way through the assembled crowd mm-hmm. to the middle, yep. bima seat, Torah table, Torah table, bima, yeah, where you read this thing and it's an encounter. It's a living, breathing. Now let's read it, and now let's dance with it, play with it, question it, and see what it's saying to each of us today where we're at. And you're, and the people who are sitting there read the a commentary so they can follow along in the Hebrew and the English with commentary so that they can start to come up with their own interpretations of what's being chanted in Hebrew that week. So everybody's working it out themselves together. Yes. Seriously, Rabbi Joel. <laughs> So good. So good. You know, um, back when I was a pastor in Michigan, we designed the main room in the round because of my, what I had just learned about bringing the, bringing the text through the middle. So it was in the middle of the thing. Oh, wow. And now this tour for my latest book, we do like these pop-up events in the round because something with, I'm happiest in the round. I'm most alive and most like, it's supposed to be in the round for this very, and it was all shaped from my understanding of how a synagogue would have been. You march that thing through so that mm-hmm. we're in the, in the middle of the place. Man. Okay, so those, those are the six words for this one. Yep. This was so, how, seriously, how much fun was this? So much fun. <laughs> Can you, some point, bring us up another six? Uh, easily. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then at some point, you're going to have to do... Um, how to how to ask questions? Yeah, oh, I would love that one. That would be a lot of fun because you have some serious mo- material on this. Like you can, you know how to teach people. To ask this is something you do. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic! Oh, great. See, people, we got we got brothers and sisters all over the place, and and you guys are coming over this weekend for swimming, yes, right? We are. Okay, so <laughs> so Rabbi Joel, his lovely wife Julie, and the girls are coming back over. We'll swim, we'll hang out, and then at some point you'll come back, sit in this chair, we'll do another one of these. We love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Rabbi Joel Nickerson and his six words in the back house. So much fun. Thank you. Thank you.